0: So we're drawing to the end of the Vasa. <clears throat> Whether we're practicing in the Vasa or outside the Vasa, the basic truths of our life don't change. As the Buddha said, we're bound by Dukkha, obstructed by Dukkha. Dukkha otina, Dukkha It's the beginning point of our practice, recognizing that we're still subject to Dukkha in this realm, the human realm. because we've noticed that, we've had some insight into the first noble truth, then we come to practice. If we hadn't recognized the limitations of a human life, then probably we'd still be out there looking for distractions and living in, you might say, a more complacent way but the nature of the practice, the Buddhist path is looking very closely at reality. So the first noble truth there is dukkha. And the Buddha said this is something to be known, investigated, and known. Dukkha is where we actually can develop wisdom, understanding. But its nature is painful. (coughs) So as human beings we tend to want to run away from it, hide it, distract ourselves from it, suppress it. When we come into the monastery and practice using the form of Vinaya and the Bhikkhu's lifestyle, then we have a chance to really look at Dukkha and understand it more closely. Just as we come to meditate, Often it's hard to make the mind settle down, to bring up consistent mindfulness, even when we try very hard when we're meditating. The mind tends to dwell in thoughts about the future, plans, or rather lingering on the past, memories and going back over old things, old stuff. As we know, the aim of our meditation is to bring the mind to the present moment, developing mindfulness on the object. when the mind is very stubborn, doesn't like that. Often it's because of dukkha. It's pain in the body, discomfort the mind itself is not happy in itself, not content. So it's jumping around from thought to thought, memory to memory, or falling asleep. So our aim is always to bring bring up more mindfulness because this is where the mind gets its strength. The stronger the mindfulness then the more we can stand up to dukkha, look at it for what it is as dukkha, rather than just reacting to it. And often, to develop mindfulness, we develop insight at the same time, wisdom, developing samadhi. So if we're sitting and the mind is not peaceful, we investigate why, what's happening use the four foundations of mindfulness and bring the mind to pay attention to the body, to feelings, to the mind, to Dhamma, to objects of mind. (coughs) Contemplate them. Whatever aspect the mind turns to, pays attention to, be looking at impermanence, looking at dukkha, looking at lack of self. There's no being person in this. This will help the mind to separate out from all the things that it normally gets caught up in. It's craving and attachment. It's moods, different objects, different experiences. And keep doing this. When mindfulness is very weak our contemplation just keeps dissolving into endless proliferation thinking and then often ends up with just sleepiness so you have to be very very vigilant as we contemplate bring up mindfulness and contemplate closely watching over the mind until it starts to settle down As it settles down and mindfulness is more established, then it's brighter, it's easier for the mind to concentrate, become a mind of samadhi. (coughs) But until that point, we have to work, be very careful, watch over it closely. Ajahn Chah used to say, it's really stubborn and all over the place. So they contemplate death. And death is dukkha, for sure. Nobody wants death. But everybody has to face death. Nobody who's born in this world doesn't die. The people we love will die. We ourselves will die. So use it as a contemplation, as a meditation. Marananu Sati cuts through a lot of proliferation about the future, the past, really make that object clear to the mind. When I was a novice in Thailand, there was one monk, venerable Tin, who was a Thai monk, well, I used to, he used to help me to learn Thai. We used to help each other do a few things like chopping chips for making genkanundai and a few other things. One day they said one of the old ladies who came to the monastery regularly had died in the village. So for a few nights we went in chanting the funeral chants for her, in her home, for the relatives. Ajahn Tin he also was interested to make his mind peaceful in meditation. And he thought if Ajahn Cha said we should contemplate death, then this is obviously a good subject. And it made him think maybe he could get some pangsakula cloth from the corpse of this old lady he was inspired by the remembering the life of the Buddha. The Buddha had taken Bangzakula cloth from the corpse of a slave Puna, made a robe into from that cloth, corpse cloth, and used it till later on he swapped it with venerable Mahakasapa who was foremost in the ascetic practices and had a monk the Buddha respected greatly and praised and he was of a similar size so one time he exchanged robes gave him that great honour the venerable tin he wanted to try out using some corpse cloth so he check with the family if they'd be happy for that and they said yes so on the day of the funeral the cremation has just done an open cremation at the front of the monastery before the funeral pyre was lit we went up and i helped him and with the villagers we pulled the cloth off from the corpse that the corpse was wrapped in We stuck it on a tree during the chanting and the ceremonies and then took it off later. It was a cloth covered in stains from the pus and the juices of a a bloated body that ooze out of the orifices when a body is left for a few days. very stained and very smelly cloth the very coarsest kind of village cloth very thick very coarsely woven (coughs) so we took it off and we spent days and days boiling it up and then sunning it and scrubbing it and then boiling it again many many times to try and both clean it and get rid of the smell and whatever we did we could never quite get rid of the smell we'd always hold it up and uh, still a bit of smell at least it was clean and hygienic and then we boiled up chips of genkanun made a thick dye dyed it it wouldn't take the dye very well so we had to add some chemical dye as well and he managed to sew it into a sabong because it was such thick coarse cloth and it was already kind of damaged from all this process. The sabong he made didn't look very nice. The kusis and the candas were difficult to sew in a nice neat straight line but it was good enough. Once it was dyed, wouldn't even accept the dye that well. It was a bit blotchy. But he made it, Adi as his main sabong. And nobody ever thought twice about the quality of the sewing. They were just impressed that he was willing to wear the sabong off a corpse. And I managed to get some of the leftover cloth to make a bathing cloth. And it's still smell, whatever you did, you washed it whatever, you'd always have a little bit of smell of corpse on it and this was for contemplation to remind oneself of death just the smell or the perception of death from remembering where the cloth comes from as it wrapped a corpse now it wraps your body something the Buddha praised to do over and over again Ajahn encouraged us to do it. Why? Because it points to the truth. The nature of our life is impermanent. We don't last forever. We don't know how long we'll be here. When you confront your mind with that, the dukkha of this existence in that it is impermanent often it will quieten down or shut up when there's a lot of proliferation going on. When your mind really gets the point, then often it goes quiet and still. Whether you're contemplating by thinking it through, verbally, conceptually, or you just reduce it down to a word or an image, the idea is the mind becomes very mindful and starts to drop all its other distractions and as it drops the other distractions it becomes bright peaceful still so it can start to experience some samadhi maybe pity and sukha arises even though it's a sad contemplation contemplating death but the letting go of all the hindrances is not sad and that brightens the mind makes our mind happy and content. Sometimes we contemplate in conjunction with the asupa practices, what they call the ten corpse meditations, part of the foundation of mindfulness based on the body. this one does by visualizing a corpse one has to first of all visualize a corpse externally so we look at a picture in a book or a video or actually see a corpse at a funeral and learn to remember that picture if you read the Scriptures, you know, there's ten meditations based on the decomposition of a human corpse, a so freshly dead, and then in various stages of decomposition, getting to know visually what it looks like, a corpse. Even if you never get the chance to see a decomposing human corpse, <coughs> we do sometimes get animals in the forest here, many times we've had deer or wallabies kangaroos die and if you're diligent you can go and look see how they change over time often it's very quick in the forest As the corpse swells up first of all because bloated and then you get liquids oozing from the orifices maggots of born into the corpse and so they start to eat and move around so the corpse seems to move and then you get birds and foxes pecking away at it starting to remove bits of flesh and bits of organs And then the liquid starts to drain out and the flesh and the organs whether they've been eaten or they've gone gooey as they degenerate start to disappear so you're left with skin and bones just little bits of flesh and hair obviously there's a terrible smell and then very quickly all the organs and the flesh have gone and you're just left with a skeleton with just tiny little bits of skin or hair eventually the bones are just there and they <coughs> and they break up. Even they get carried away by animals, go and chew on them, till in the end there's really nothing much left, maybe the odd bone or two. We can use such a, an experience to observing that from the outside and then you bring it in, in your meditation. Imagine yourself in that way. If we would, when we die, were laid out in the forest, then it would be exactly the same for us. Same kind of degeneration, same kind of experience, watching animals pick away at our own flesh and so on. In the end this body is just made up of four elements, earth, air, fire, water. At the moment of death when consciousness leaves the body then the heat immediately drains away. The air stops coming in and out, the breath has stopped. And then gradually the earth and the water element start to separate and break down. That's what this body is. Whichever way you're looking at at it as a concept, the concept of death, the ending, the cessation of life, the ending of interaction with other people and the world. or you're contemplating more as a physical process, the actual breakdown of the body through death and then decomposition. It's teaching you about the impermanence of this body that you're inhabiting. It brings your mind right to the present moment, cuts through delusions, greed, anger, delusion, the normal makeup of the mind, the more normal moods and thoughts that it gets caught up in suddenly fade into being unimportant. So the contemplation of death or the asupagamatanas are very valuable for training the mind in wisdom. As wisdom, as we keep focusing, paying attention to this object, then mindfulness comes up and the hindrances start to drop away. Strangely enough, the more one focuses on, say, the corpse meditation, the mind might become brighter and brighter and the sense of contentment becomes stronger when the meditation is going well. The hindrances drop away. It's not something that necessarily leads to depression or wanting to give up. If that, that's the result of such a meditation then maybe one is approaching it in the wrong way when conducted with wisdom and mindfulness, it's a vehicle to really help direct the mind to the present moment and let let all the different hindrances go very quickly. This is what we're aiming for in meditation. Whatever object we're using is to bring up more consistent mindfulness to make the mind stronger so it can go beyond what's normally affecting it. It's the same with feelings. When you meditate, when mindfulness is weak, painful feelings are enough to put you off. If you've got some pain in your legs, then you want to stop sitting. Or if you're walking meditation, you feel tired, you want to stop walking. And Dukkha waitana in different situations is often enough just to completely overwhelm the mind. Not even a lot of Dukkha waitana when mindfulness is lacking and we attach to that now we react with craving and attachment. That's it. That's enough for the mind to be lost into proliferation or to look for different distractions. So to have the strength of mindfulness and determination sometimes just to keep sitting with Dukkha Vaitana, keep walking with Dukkha Vaitana, not to give up. We start to contemplate, you can see our coming and going, sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak and rather than letting it lead on to Dhanha and upadana in the mind, just to establish mindfulness and patiently contemplate it, you bring up the reflection, is this a self or not, is this a being, a person or is it just part of nature? All the vaitanā that we experience, the pleasure and the pain, has come to us through our sense contact. All of that is conditioned by past karma. You only can have vaitanā if the senses are functioning properly. You can only have pleasant or unpleasant vaitanā rise if, say, the eyes. If you have your eyes functioning well, there's light can see a form, consciousness is there, and then waitana will arise. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant sometimes. And if the mindfulness is lacking, then waitana leads to dandha, liking or disliking. But it's a conditioned thing, depending on all these different factors. It's not a person, it's not a you, it's not me, them, a person, a being. It's Vaitana, something that arises in dependence on various factors and conditions. If we contemplate in this way, we start to observe, investigate our Vaitana, and we're breaking through that normal delusion of self that leads on to the proliferation, that leads on to the distraction. So we can keep looking in this way, looking at Waitana, the Waitana that makes us want to move as we meditate. And sometimes don't move, just watch the weightener. say this is not self, don't react to it and get up, and even change your legs over. Just sit still, learn to sit still for a period of time. Be patient enough to do that and then your wisdom can start functioning. The mind settles down. Little by little, this is how we build up the kind of qualities that we're looking for in the practice. We have little moments where we can overcome the kilesas, the, the greed, the anger, the delusion that forms around experience. We can let go of that greed, anger and delusion or the sense of self. In the end, whatever's arising in the mind, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, all not self. These are all just conditions, objects of mind that can be known. If mindfulness and wisdom is strong, then we just see it as not self. Even the good wholesome states of mind are not self. If we attach to them as self then we, even then they'll become a cause of dukkha and suffering. We become proud and conceited because we feel we're maybe better than somebody else, or we're better because of the practice. We tend to these two extremes. Either we feel inadequate or our practice is not good enough, so I'm not a good meditator, not a good practitioner. Or if we have any success, then we feel, oh, I'm going really well here, maybe I'm better than other people either way it's the delusion again forming around our experience it's all to be seen as not self and when we see as not self then the mind lets go even if only temporarily it lets go feels more experience of peace letting go leads to peace letting go is letting go of the cause of suffering so the suffering that we experienced in the past starts to fade and we're not laying the causes for more suffering in the future. So this is the way the Buddha encouraged us to practice and to develop mindfulness and wisdom through the practice, whatever the posture, the situation, keep working at it. Little by little you're Unbinding your mind from Sanksara. You know, we're bound to, to Sanksara by the fetters, the ten fetters. The first ones, the first three, are what we're particularly working with. Sakaya ditti, a self view, the view, the deluded view that takes everything as self. Me, mine, myself, a person, a being, us, them. (coughs) That whole way of relating to experience, coming from ignorance, conditioning it. We're establishing enough clarity to question that viewpoint, see through it, see it as false, incorrect. Free the mind from those reactions that always come when there is a sense of self. So, freeing the mind from being bound up by that fetter to the candors, to the body and feeling, thoughts and memories, sense consciousness. Breaking through the fetter of doubt, the uncertainty about the practice. Uncertainty about whether it really works or not, uncertain about what it is. Lack of clarity, uncertainty, doubt in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, doubt in the way of practice and so on. And superstition, superstitious beliefs, hoping that some particular practice will bring us to enlightenment or when attaching in a very fixed way to certain practices, rituals, and so on. Breaking through these three fetters. That's what we're doing as we develop mindfulness and insight little by little. Yep, rooting those fetters. Reducing your attachment to the world or the the ability of the world to pull you down, pull you down to it through delusion. So you're freeing the mind from the fetters little by little to the point where you're you're actually reducing the cause for further birth. So Sotapanna doesn't get born more than seven times maximum. Maybe only three, maybe only one. This is what the Buddha was referring to to really go and look at dukkha the nature of dukkha that surrounds our life is caught up in our life and really see through it to the point where you can really reduce the amount of dukkha affecting the mind and the potential for more dukkha in the future as well so my Voice is not very good tonight, so I'll just leave you with those reflections and encourage you to carry on with your practice.